0: to another episode of I saw
1: what you did bonus episode pew, 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 pew. Pew. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I'm Millie by the way I'm Danielle
0: and um thanks for uh, being here thanks for wanting to bonus with us
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will never feel like I'm a bonus in anyone's life but I appreciate it
0: <laughs> you're a bonus in my
1: life but
0: you're also on the main feed so how about that
1: this is real i was just making
0: the pot the incredibly nerdy podcast (laughs) metaphor of you're my bonus episode but you're also my main feed episode if you know what
1: i mean oh that's a sweet that would be such a sweet card
0: (laughs) i would (laughs) i would think that was sweet and then vomit because we both host a podcast now and
1: exactly you know. and i would also think it was sweet if you like if people only were allowed to send it to like their grandparents or their great aunt who had no idea what it meant just to get <laughs> their reactions like i just want taped reactions to like oh thanks
0: <laughs> uh what is this Look, good time war of the worlds that's the only radio i know of
1: jim is is this a a bomb threat (laughs) is this in code
0: (laughs) i only remember when jimmy dean was on the craft theater of the stars and he was doing a (laughs) arthur miller play i don't know what the fuck (laughs) so okay i thought it might be fun for this bonus episode if we did something where Well, let me let me give it a little bit of context. So I have gotten a lot of emails and a lot of texts from people in my life about the podcast, which is awesome. I'm honestly just like I love that my friends are listening to it. I don't know if that's I'm sure it's probably the same for you, Daniel, where you're like, oh, my my sister likes it. It's a win. She doesn't like anything.
1: I get excited when I see your sister's um, likes on the Instagram.
0: (laughs) I was like, and listen, my sister. It's a hard sell for her a lot. So (laughs) I'm like, she likes it. I'm thrilled. I get I've been getting a lot of messages from my friends who don't actually know you, Danielle. And a lot of these people are people that I knew from Atlanta, like people went to college with that. I don't know if we necessarily have overlapped, you know, like my friendship and the podcast with you and knowing them. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of people, not just people I know personally, but I think a lot of people out there that are obsessed with you and just want to know more. And I thought maybe a good way to do that is that I interview you, you know, and like a ter- a very like Terry gross from fresh air type of way. Maybe, maybe a little bit, you know, more cussing. Who knows? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm down.
1: If I can curse, I'm down.
0: Okay, good. Cause I, you know, it's always a, you know, an ask of like, Hey, do you mind if I ask you a bunch of personal questions and you can tell them to people on a microphone? <laughs>
1: Well, it's also it's what's wild is that, like, it doesn't feel that way when we record because I'm just talking to my friend. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I know it's sneaky that way. But but I also know that you are you have written a memoir about your life and maybe some of this will be in your memoir. I don't know. But I just figured maybe it's just a good way for people to get to know you. And you have had. Truly one of the most fascinating lives of anyone I've ever met. And I just think that you got to tell the folks, like you got to tell people about your stories because they're just incredible. And you're just such an incredible person. I just figured, would you be down with that if I just asked you a bunch of questions?
1: Completely down with that. And I, you know, you know me, like as a matter of course, I do not mind talking about my experiences because I think when I was younger, I needed A me in my life. Like I needed someone to be like, things are possible. And just because this happened to you, that doesn't mean that it's going to be like that forever. So I will I will do it for for the for the people. I'll do it for the children. Oh, good. Good.
0: (laughs) Okay, You've mentioned in other episodes that you grew up in Warwick, New York. Yeah. Were you born there or you were just were you there?
1: Yeah. So um, my mom and dad were child, were um, high school sweethearts, and he was a year older than her. So when he graduated, he moved to North Carolina with his family. Like, his family's like, good, all our kids are out of school, let's go. And they moved back to North Carolina. A year later, my mom graduated and ran away from home the summer after she graduated to join him without telling anybody. Oh, wow. And uh, she was pregnant with my brother within like three months. And then... Maybe longer than that. And then she was pregnant with me like six months after my brother was born. And then at that point, my great grandmother, her grandma was like, you need to come home. (laughs) Like, come home. So when she was pregnant with me, she moved back to New York, upstate New York. um, And that's where I was born.
0: Yeah, because you've talked about having this, I mean, how I see it anyway, is this really like idyllic farm based rural almost upbringing the nobody's fool upbringing yeah so do you remember that a lot of that of from your childhood were you into like going through the wheat crops and you know? <laughs> i mean it was still the 1980s it wasn't like little house on the prairie oh, so you weren't born <laughs> in days of heaven the movie where you were
1: <laughs> you were born in a field <laughs> they put they put a scythe in my hands as soon as i turned 5 And I was just chopping down wheat. (laughs) No, it was I mean, it was kind of like that. (laughs) It's kind of bizarre to think about because I was outdoorsies, but it was like a forced outdoorsies. Because in the 80s, in the summer especially, I think parents were like, go outside and don't come back till the streetlights come on. And that was how and then we were just outside all day like, finding adventures. And um, so, yeah, I liked being outside. And I love Four Seasons. I miss having Four Seasons. But, yeah, I had a very, like, my town had one traffic light for most of my upbringing. Um, You know, high school was flanked by farms on all sides. Uh, It was definitely an idyllic upbringing that I 100% could not stand when I was growing up there. Yeah, yeah. It was so safe and so like, you know, insulated, but also it was very strange because I was, you know, the black people that were in my town, I could count on two hands and five of them I was related to. So <laughs> it's like it wasn't was not very diverse at all. Um, and those small towns come with their own their own baggage. And sometimes it's not outright racism. It's just that knowledge that you don't belong and you don't fit in.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Did you feel like growing up there as a black woman was hard just considering yeah you know the racial composition of where you were living
1: i'm hearing it more and more from black women online and in my own life where i grew up out of place in so many ways that race almost wasn't the top one but it was always the foundational one so I felt out of place because I was black. And so, I, you know, we had to go swimming for gym and I was like, oh, I can't. My hair and like people just didn't understand that. And they would like make fun of me because my hair didn't look like it was wet and just, you know, just all that kind of stuff that just is always foundational. But then it was also like I felt out of place because I was weird. I listened to punk rock. I liked, you know, heavy metal, uh, which was of the time, but not for black people. I would go to concerts and be the only black person at like the heavy metal shows, and I felt at a place because I was like I was into art, and then I also was at a place because we didn't own a house. You know, I lived with my grandparents in a duplex. I've, I've always lived in apartments. Like there were a couple of times where my my mom rented a house, but um, we never lived in the whole thing. It was like a house that was. Bisected into duplexes, so you know that's not common where I grow up. You know, everyone yeah. owns a house and you know lives in the house with the two point one kids and the dog and all that shit. So I was out of place in so many ways that after a while, it was just like, eh, fuck it, <laughs> I just don't fit in here, and I'm not even gonna try.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, I totally hear you on that. Like my my dad was in the military. And he we moved around a shit ton and we actually lived for long periods of time in hotels. And that was always such a weird subject, you know, and I guess obviously when you're a kid, too, there are moments in childhood where you're like you figure out maybe somebody tells you that. But like you're like, oh, I'm not like everyone else for some weird reason. And it usually has something to do with class. And you're like, yep. somebody's like, you're fucking poor. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs>
1: Like, I'm just I was at the uh, library, <laughs> yeah, what do you mean? I know like I, we had to, we didn't have a um, a washer and dryer in my house growing up, but there was a laundromat on the corner, and part of the reason why my grandparents moved to this place that they moved to in Warwick is because they didn't drive, so they needed to be in the center of town to get anything done, so we could walk to the grocery store, we could walk to the dry cleaners, we could walk, and we could wheel our cart up to the laundromat and It never failed to blow my mind when I was an adult living in Harlem and living in New York City and seeing people my own age with those metal grandma carts. Because it's just practical when you live in a city, it's just practical to have one. And it blew my fucking mind and it gave me like instant trauma flashbacks because I'm like, I remember bringing that up the street when I was nine and 10 years old. (laughs) Or like, I remember dragging that up the street as a teenager and watching my crush drive by with his parents. And here I am going to the laundromat already embarrassing enough with my whole family's clothes. Like it was just so, so many moments like that, that were always class-based embarrassment for sure. And just compounded, you know?
0: I also think too, that was like, not to say that it doesn't happen, but I feel like in the eighties when we were small, you know, that was a huge thing. I mean, it was in movies. It was like the center of like a lot of movies, especially movies featuring like kids and teenagers. And like, It just seems like it was probably pretty hard to be poor in the 80s for multiple reasons, but just for, you know, being a kid and getting bullied for that kind of shit.
1: Oh, absolutely. And also, like you remember, like growing up in that time, it wasn't like we were seeing representations of different ways to live. So now you could turn on a TV show and the family lives in an apartment. That was not normal (laughs) when we were growing up. It was never that. It was always a house. It was always a house or you're super poor, and those were the only representations. There are lots of ways that I felt out of place growing up. And, and in a way, it was kind of liberating because realizing early on that I did not fit in made it more possible for me to be independent a lot sooner than most people I knew.
0: Yeah. So, how, were you always close to your grandma? Because I know you have such an amazing relationship. And, you know, she's obviously a big part of this podcast, but were you you always close to her? Like, did you live with her at certain points?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was always close to her. We lived with my grandparents when my mom first came back from North Carolina. So we were at my grandparents' house for like, like a few years, a couple of years. And then my mom, um, my mom was on welfare and we got our first apartment. It was like a Section 8 apartment kind of thing. And in true small town fashion, it's because um, a family friend, bought a building and opened a deli downstairs. And so he rented the apartment to her upstairs. So that was like our first place was when I was like five. Um, And it was just my mom, my brother and I. But it was, you know, it was an apartment. Then when I was 10, we moved in with my grandmother again. Um, But this time it was unexpected. So in between that, uh, when I was like seven, my mom met a man who was always like extremely violent, but come to find out he was also high. Like he used to do crack cocaine and heroin, oftentimes right in front of me. And um, he was just a terrible dude. He was very abusive. He was physically abusive. He was sexually abusive. He like picked me up and threw me down a hallway one day and I had to get stitches on my toe. And like it was bad news. It was bad news. So she met this dude. And suddenly, like, you know, my mom, who'd been really working her way up in the world, like getting jobs, and she didn't want to be on welfare, and she didn't want to be on food stamps anymore, and she was really doing it. And then he just came and dismantled all of that and used like all of our money for drugs, the car that my grandmother took out a loan to get her a car. He drove that into the ground. He would take us, my mom worked nights. Um, She worked at a switchboard place where she put together like computer components. And then she worked as a nurse's aide. And he would take my brother and I and load us into the car middle of the night and drive us over the Tappan Zee Bridge into the Bronx where he would leave us in the car while he scored drugs or while he did drugs. Sometimes he took us with him on robberies, like he robbed bodegas. All the time, and just like left us in the car. Like I was be in the back seat with my Judy Bloom book. Like I don't know what's happening, but he came out of that store with a sh- fucking sawed-off shotgun and put it under the car seat. Wow! And like it was really violent. It was violent and horrible. And then he got put into jail for something that's in my book, but it's hard to talk about. So, um, but he got put put into jail. And basically, the authorities were told my mom like he can't be within a thousand feet of your kids, and. She had a kid with him. They'd had, a like, my little brother by that point. So I imagine she was kind of torn, but her decision was to drop my brother and I off at my grandparents' house for a weekend and not come back. So she bailed him out, moved to the city with him and their son, and they had two more kids, and I never lived with them again.
0: Man, holy shit. Yeah. Your grandmother was, man, I mean, what a fucking angel. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: My gra- And my grandparents were retired at that point. Like they had moved to this place in Warwick because they were done. And I always thought like, you know, like my grandfather worked in the city and he would, you know, it's a two hour commute one way by bus. And, you know, he always busted his ass. So he was done. And they were going to have this life together where they would, you know, go to Atlantic City and like <laughs> just be together. And then here we come, these two preteens. And my granddad went back to work. My grandma got a job for the first time. She was like a stay-at-home mom before that. She got a job waitressing. And was really kind of funny. She got a job waitressing at um, this catering place inside of a convent, like there's a convent in my hometown. And then she started working for the convent and eventually ran the switchboards. But I also worked at that convent when I was a teenager. Wow, <laughs> so it was kind of a weird connection.
0: What was working at a convent like?
1: <laughs> it was bonkers. Well, because the sisters were like, I'm not a religious person. My family is very much like, you know, get baptized, do your communion, you're out. Like we just covered all the bases for your little soul. We're out of here. So I'm not really religious. But what was really cool about working at the convent is that these were all women who had lived all over the world. So there were women there from Italy, from Germany. And that was actually kind of inspiring to me. I'm like you can keep the God part, but it's cool that like to learn about where you traveled as a result of what you chose for your life, you know, to be in a small town and talk to people who had that kind of worldly experience was like really inspiring to me.
0: Yeah, I grew up Catholic, as I've mentioned before. Uh, <laughs> it's like the center of my neuroses, I think. But I never had been to a convent. I've, def- I've been to like a monastery, but I've mm. just to visit, like not, <laughs> not to hang. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: hanging in a monastery
0: (laughs) yeah right but it's also like i don't know i think it's interesting because nuns i feel like in movies especially they always make nuns cooler than monks like i'm Mm -hmm. like monks are very serious and they have like no passions except for the lord nuns are doing shows with whoopi goldberg (laughs) <laughs> you know, like nuns can sing they can ride bicycles they drive
1: cars know? yeah my sister paula in my in in the convent that i worked in she would lease a new car for two years
0: <laughs> it's awesome. and I'm like, was she like, driving she came- like a mustang like what's her what yeah was her car? she was
1: driving like these little sporty cars i think when the miata first came out she got one like for the rest of the time that i knew her up until like my early 20s she was Always in a new car that was a little bit sporty,
0: I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I think monks, because wasn't there like a whole trend in the '90s where monks were like on like EDM songs
1: and shit? yes, oh my God boom 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 boom.
0: i I, I, I completely (laughs) neglected the techno monks out there i apologize to you not sure if you listen to podcast bonus episodes but if you do my apologies
1: (laughs) techno monks are real yeah but they were cool and they were nice to me and they were like interested in my life and it was it was cool it was cool to work at the convent they kept trying to recruit me but i was like nah
0: (laughs) it's a hard sell for a lot of people i will say I I always joke about it, you know. <laughs> uh but it's hard. So, I'm curious because I think we've talked about this before, maybe on sort of details the old podcast that I used to do, um mm. when we had you on as a guest. Um which is that you kind of got into reading and science fiction pretty early, I would say. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if maybe You could talk a little bit about that simply because, you know, you just kind of described a lot of hardcore things that happened to you as a child. And I just I know as from experience, not to that degree, but like just based on things in my life, but also other people have talked about how this kind of stuff helps them and like saves them a lot of times from bad shit. So.
1: Was that your experience? Absolutely. I was so excited when I got my first library card and it was blue and it had a little metal piece on it and I got to sign my name on it. I think that that books and reading, like books for sure, sci-fi for sure, it gave me a way to think about the world outside of myself. And so I would read voraciously, you know, because I just wanted to know everything I could about the world because I knew I didn't fit into what this world that I was in and so what was really cool I don't know if you guys remember this but YA is kind of a new invention they had a children's section but it went up to like little house in the big woods and then you were just out so I remember like kind of sneaking my way into the adult section and starting with like you know, kind of more generic books and not necessarily novels. But my librarian was really cool. and She would let me read whatever I wanted. And so I would just bring home a stack of books and I could walk to the library every day and I could walk. It was where I spent my summers. And yeah, books set me free because I was able to kind of synthesize a world that was possible based on examples that I was not seeing in my real life. Same with science fiction, because I think science fiction takes you out of the real world or the you know the reality of the the world that we're in and kind of imagine something different and often better usually much more treacherous but it really it it shifted something in me to know that these thoughts were possible these worlds were possible it just yeah it was kind of ex- it was expansive it was expansive and i like spending time alone and i like being indoors you know like i'm not really i don't mind sitting outside but i'm not a sporty outdoors person <laughs> and so like any reason to sit inside and if i was quiet I could sit inside all day. If my grandparents didn't know I was there, I could be there all day. In general, I kind of, you know, I loved Confederacy of Dunces when I found that book. I loved, uh, like, how do you say, like, right now I'm kind of like, I'm into Agatha Christie. I'm into things now that kind of started back then. (laughs) You know, there, there are some authors that I think you can really run the gamut with. I just love stories about people's lives. And then whenever we were assigned shit in school to be like, do a biography of this person, I was like, yeah. And then everyone else was like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> like, can I do a biography of George Carlin? And they're like, absolutely not.
0: <laughs> if I was in your class and I saw you get up and do a book report or something on George Carlin, I'd been like, <laughs> yes, standing o, standing, standing o. ovation. Five-minute clap. Like, okay, so speaking of this, this is always, like, really fascinating to me because you sort of teased this a little bit. Like, I think it was probably, like, your second episode when you were, like, talking about how you, you would get in strange cars <laughs> with people in high school. So were you, what were you like in high school? Like, what, what was being <laughs> in high school in a small town like?
1: It was wild because I didn't go to parties. I didn't date. I went to New York City and that was kind of my escape valve. So when I was home, I would just kind of do my library n- normal nerdy things. I had jobs, like I worked at a, you know, bakery and a cafe and I worked at a toy store, I babysat. It wasn't until I got a car that um things started popping off. But for the most part it was like it was pretty gentle. Like I didn't feel any sense of fear. Like we you know, we would do dumb shit, like go out to the fields and just like lay down and talk and hang out with your friends in graveyards and shit <laughs> like it was it was a very goth upbringing, I guess
0: well, how was your high school like in terms of like did you have like jocks and were they like corn fed? tractor kind of guys or like how
1: like what was it like we had a 4-H club for sure we had jocks because my school was kind of tops in the district for all that shit and I think it's because like the taxes of my town made the school really good and so it was a huge huge sports basketball football like huge track all that shit did you ever try sports at all uh, no no
0: OK, just had no. to ask
1: for the record. Oh, God. And my, the coach at my school would ask me. I would have, we, he was the gym coach as well. So we, he would ask me every year, like, Henderson, you going out for basketball? And I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> He's like, you're so tall. And I'm like, I'm also very uncoordinated and I don't want to do it.
0: Yeah. But no, dream, I never did. His dream just died in his just eyes. Watch, like, I like
1: to watch him wither on the line. vine every year. But I, I did drum corps, which is like so nerdy. I played baritone horn and we marched in these wool uniforms all summer long in regional parades. And we had to learn how to play songs and like march in formation. And it was very militaristic, uh, but it was fun. It was fun. That's kind of the most the most that I did. And I played softball when I was a little kid. Um, but that ended when I, I threw a complete tantrum. Um, flung a bat back towards the bullpen and hit the fence but i missed my coach's head by like five inches like she had to duck to get out of the way and i was like oh i've got some anger issues that i will not resolve for a decade sorry so always, sports always
0: brings that out of people that it's the if it's festering i played softball yeah. too uh we'll, we'll have to talk about that off mic because it was a huge part of my life. Like in a way that no one really knows about. So there
1: really ooh, oh, yeah. the lost episode might be all about softball. <laughs> yeah, it'll
0: be my, like uh my my the road less traveled thing. You know, how it's like that, like I could have been this or I could have been this. Truly. If but I anyway. hadn't
1: killed that person on our softball <laughs> tournament in 1988, I could have been a star. If I hadn't yeah, started like...
0: smoking cigarettes,
1: <laughs> I could have been a completely different person.
0: I know I talk about cigarettes a lot on this podcast, but I'm just saying. They're like, not it just cigarettes. A part. Sometimes they're life choices. You know what I mean? Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Depending on how, how early you start, too. Yes, um, that's true. But it was definitely like your quintessential... Jock Prep. Oh God, everyone had a fucking sob when they drove when they got in high school. Like, Jesus Christ. Lousy I drove me with sob. sobs.
0: <laughs> but Lousy. it was from 1984 and had hundred and four thousand miles on it. And I ran over a boulder and cracked it. Cracked the axle. Oh so God. and it fell down a hill. But anyway, so I didn't oh have a sob that those guys had. I had like somebody's shitball sob that
1: yeah you had you had a tank yeah <laughs> truly
0: but i love that those cars incredible. i gotta say now i'm like shit somebody gave me a old sob i'd take that shit in a minute
1: the boxy. i like the boxy ones but everyone had that like teardrop shaped one and like oh God. Uh-huh. it was just like the wealth and privilege in my town was astounding and that was just an extension of it so even though it's like the car is not bad it's just the people in it are such shitheads yes And it was all like, you know, it was a time of like turtlenecks and waterfall necklaces, like the necklace that popped over the top. And like everyone did everything the same way and things would get popular in the same way. And I just didn't want any part of it. So I was I think like I started really flying my freak flag when I was in seventh grade. And um, I just kind of, you know, amped it up, kept it going. The first day of my freshman year in high school, I wore a skirt made out of ties. And I was so mad when Blossom did it because I was like, This bitch, I got this from Sassy Magazine. (laughs) I'm the only one clearly who reads Sassy Magazine.
0: (laughs) No, but you, I swear to God, there's always this one, there's usually one girl that you grew up with that you go through like middle school and high school with, because I guess you live like close to each other that like was alternative when she was in middle school. And you're like, wow, like what a pioneer. I Mm -hmm. worshiped that person like whoever was alternative in middle school (laughs) which i argue is like the worst i actually think middle school is worse than high school that's just my
1: 100 percent yeah in so many ways it's like your body is revolting against you your brain is still developing everyone is so cruel it's the cruelest years of the school life
0: and Usually in high school, if people are shitty to you, you just drive your sob into New York City and, you know, fucking go hang out at like the cool bookstores or the cool movie theaters. In middle school, you are fucking trapped because you have to be at home with your parents on a Friday night, usually. And the only thing you have is like Saturday Night Live or like, Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs)
0: like sketch comedy TV. You don't have any way to escape it.
1: All you have is kids in the hall and you better make sure you tape it because they're not going to show it again (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and you won't be able to just watch it whenever you want. So, Yeah. yeah, it was brutal, brutal. And you have to get on the bus with all these assholes and like it's just you can't. You're right. There's no escape. There's no escape. So, yeah, my escape was kind of to just be like, I'm not like you. Like don't if I don't play your game, then you can't hurt me or be cruel to me in the way that you're used to being cruel to and hurting people.
0: So in high school you were kind of hanging out. Do you were doing some like heavy metal activities, oh, yeah. like you were in you were a little bit of a headbanger, which I love. Oh, Monsters of rock tour, what's up? See, now you like in science fiction. This is all coming together for me. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, heavy metal fan into science fiction? Come on. Like this is awesome. I picked. Oh, a, I picked to do a podcast with the right person. You know what I mean? Like, this is incredible. Because there was like people at my high school that were exactly that, and they were just like so fascinating and fun and interesting, and they grew up to be like awesome people. Maybe oh. one of them is a murderer, but the rest are awesome.
1: Um, I mean, that is the line we walk. Is that <laughs> we 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 are not legion by any stretch because there's always that outlier. Yeah. And that Outlier is usually terrifying. Yes. But oh yeah, a fucking Metall- I would go to a Metallica show and just like work my way to the fucking front. And I loved that shit. I would go to Roseland, the Wetlands. Like I would just go to... And because I was tall, no one asked me any questions when I walked up to the front door- front door. Like I could get into any concert, any bar, any club because my goal wasn't to drink and be crazy. It was to see the music.
0: What did you do after high school? Did you stick around? Did you... hit your ride out of that one horse town
1: (laughs) i put bon jovi on the tape deck and i was out of there God, Uh. amazing (laughs) well because like the the place where i grew up to is is it's interesting in that way because i grew up in warwick new york which is on the border of vernon new jersey which is where action park is oh yeah um and there's a documentary about action park and i will tell you that it is all real and it's terrifying. But like, once you get to a certain age as a teenager, you kind of spent some summers at Action Park. But for my last summer, after I graduated, I worked, worked my ass off. I got a car for, I think it was like 100 or $200 and some babysitting for free for the family that I worked for. And this car was a clunker. It was a Chevette. It was a clunker, a tank, like, but it was mine. And I would go to concerts and I would go, you know, drive to Connecticut to see like Ani DeFranco and like, <laughs> I was just all over the place. Um, but I did go to college. I went to college for a year right out of high school. My best friend, Alexis, who's still my best friend to this day, was kind of the one who encouraged me to apply because my my guidance counselor kept steering me towards community college. And there's nothing wrong with community college at all. But I knew I didn't want to stay in my town. So I'm like, why are you steering me towards if I if I don't want to be here? So she was like, you can apply to other colleges, you know, and she really like helped me with that. So I went to a very small college called LaSalle um, in Newton, Massachusetts, and I chose it because the application was only $20 and because Anne Sexton lived there when she was alive. Oh, wow. Those are, those are not the ways to choose a college, people. <laughs>
0: I mean, it sounds good to me, but you know,
1: <laughs> I was like, Ooh, this poet that I like lived there and it's like, only 20 bucks. And I hated it. Oh God, I hated it. I was, a, I was majoring in fashion design. Cause I was, I made my own clothes and, you know, I started sewing when I was like 12 Um, and I would go to the thrift store. My fabric that I used, used to buy was like, I'd go to the thrift store and deconstruct shirts and pants and stuff and just use that to, like very pretty and pink, like put it back together again. (laughs) But I thought, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I loved Todd Oldham. Like it was kind of that house of style time. So I went to school for fashion design in Newton, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. It was terrible. It was a very, it was a small college for, for women. And it was basically like a, a charm school, almost like I just chose wrong. My, my roommate was like, um, She was excited to go to any college because if she completed four years of any college, her dad was going to buy her a hunt club membership. I was like, what the fuck is that? And she's like, it's like a place I can ride my horse. And I was like, where the shit am I? Yeah. So everyone was just like drunk and, you know, I loved my teachers so much. It was just like a really hard time and I didn't like it. So I left after a year. I left and I told my grandma, like, I am not going back to school. And she was like, I'm not paying for any of it. So you can do whatever you want because I took out all my own loans. I had all my own you know scholarships and everything so again came home for the summer and worked and then I got a one-way ticket to California um, I shipped whatever few things I wanted to ship I sent them um, by media mail and to my aunt and did I that just, take
0: like 40 years or how oh long no, it,
1: it took like three weeks but I basically moved everything except for furniture I moved for like ten dollars a box it was incredible You can't do that anymore, guys. But yeah, it was great. And my aunt lived out there. So I stayed with her for a couple of months. Where did she live in California? She was in San Francisco. Um, And then by the time when I got there, she had moved to Fairfield, which is north of San Francisco. But I was fine with it. It was like kind of a suburban place, but it was close to things. And I was you know, what, 19? (laughs) and just like, yeah, this is fine. But I got my own apartment, worked as a barista in the mall, you know, started meeting people, started dating. Like, it was kind of cool. And I had like my own little, very independent life at 19. Uh, I was paying bills. I was paying rent. (laughs) I was, you know, I bought a car. Like, I had to do all that shit by myself all the time. No one in my family ever knew how to help me with that stuff. But I made it work. And it was great. And then, you know, I kind of, you know, just really... Kind of felt like I wanted to come back to New York. Like I hadn't really planned on being in California for a long time, but I was, and I ended up being there for about four years. And I came back to New York in 99, moved to Queens, and um, with a friend of mine from California who was a flight attendant and wanted to, you know, kind of have a roommate because, you know, they weren't always going to be home. And so uh, I lived in Astoria, Queens. And it was fucking great. I worked. uh, I did temping for a little while and then I got a job with the United Nations. Um, Whoa. (laughs) Amazing. I know. And what's weird is like, I don't think anyone knows this because there's no reason to. But the United Nations has its own credit union. And my job was to I worked at the the bank, essentially, and my job was to kind of hunt down people who owed the bank money. Like they would take out loans while they were on appointment and send their kids to private school and buy cars. And then their appointment would be over. They would go back to wherever and still owe a ton of money. And we're like, hey, you still owe us money. So that was my job. I was a grifter for the United Nations. You were shaking down (laughs)
0: ambassadors. Yeah. You were like speaking through those little (sighs) boxes being like, bitch, give me my fucking money. With the microphone
1: on the desk. Uh, I remember distinctly being like... 22 years old and talking to a grown ass man about how his house was going to be foreclosed on because he hadn't paid his mortgage in six months. And then I would go to my boss's office and be like, I'm 22. Are you sure I should be doing this? Like this man was in tears in my office.
0: You're doing but great, man, Henderson. Just... just keep going. Keep keep pressing the buttons. Put them in keep the getting...
1: thumb screws. Come on. <laughs> It was so weird. It was so weird. And then September 11th happened and it was fucking freaky. So I got home that day. um, I went over the bridge with a friend of mine who worked at the United Nations, gave me a ride to Astoria because it was right over the bridge. And as as we're going over, like I could see the smoke from the towers. And it was just like there was all this ash floating for like two days, three days, like just floating in the air. But basically I went back to Queens and. Wait, so let me let me interrupt you for a second. Were you in the building when September 11th happened? I was in the United Nations, which is not near the World Trade Center. Oh, okay. Um, But because I was in the United Nations, we were on immediate lockdown. So they, like, hustled us into a basement. They brought in, like, you know what those TVs on wheels that used to have in... uh, in elementary school and high school and shit. Yeah. They brought one of those in. But we were like essentially in a bunker for a few hours while they figured oh, is that out what was protocol?
0: going on. I don't, I don't know if this is boring. Yeah. I just want to know. No.
1: No, I think it is. I think it's protocol because you never know like what dignitaries are visiting. You never know like if there's heads of state or anything like that. So I think they just kind of have to have a plan, especially since that day was so wild. And they're like, the Pentagon is hit. The Twin Towers are hit. Like, what the fuck is going to happen yeah. next? Like, so I think they were, it was just like a real panic moment mode. But once they let us out, I was like, all right, I'm going home, (laughs) I guess. And uh, my phone didn't work. It was such a clear, bright day. I remember walking down to get a slice of pizza and people were just crying and sad. And I was so sad and I was so scared. And I realized very acutely that I'm on an island by myself in that moment. And I found a way to get home uh, to Warwick for a few days. And I went with my friend, Sarah Jackson. But it just like, I don't even know if anyone remembers that time after September 11th, but, you know, anthrax was a big deal. People were getting mailed anthrax, you know, in envelopes. And it was really scary. I would I would be walking on 8th Avenue or walking on, you know, um, it, the, the, walking close to downtown, not even close to the World Trade Center, just on my way downtown. And you would see tanks just bringing huge beams of iron and, you know, driving out of the site. It was really, really sad.
0: At the time that September 11th happened, I was like a senior in college and I was general manager of this college radio station. And every year we went to this event called CMJ, which they Ooh. used to have in New York. And it was like, you know, basically like the South by Southwest that took place in New York. It was essentially all these college radio kids getting together for a week and just kind of running around New York, going to see bands and, you know, all the shit. So. We, for whatever reason, decided like the, the school was entirely chill with us. We were on a plane to New York a week and a half after September 11th. Like basically what? we were like they hadn't canceled the festival technically. And so it was this thing where we're like, well, we have all these tickets and there's six of us. We might as well go. And so we got on an airplane a week and a half after September 11th. And I remember thinking, wow, I've never seen the airport this empty in my life there was nobody on this plane but me and my co-workers and then we were like in new york a lot of it in lower manhattan because that's where like a lot of bars and stuff are and i was like wow the vibe is so fucking crazy like i can't imagine what it would have been like for you like living there but i just remember being in the, in that environment for a very short period of time going this is insane
1: yeah it was somber and wild like that is so bonkers that they're like yep Plane it's fine, get on a plane. A plane. Yeah.
0: No, a different <laughs> world thing <to> back <laughs> then, right? We keep saying a different world, but I guess that's kinda of true. You know?
1: Truly. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, it was it was it changed my life because it changed the city for me. Like I didn't feel safe in that city anymore. And it was a city where I came of age. You know, like I felt very at home in New York. But not after that. It was really strange. And it kind of, you know, that those events kind of make people take stock, of course, but I think th- the only thing that I really decided was I'm not closing the door on New York, but I, I can't be here right now. So in February of 2002, I went to see um, to visit a friend of mine in Alaska and I went for a week and I loved it. I loved it. Middle of winter. Fucking loved it. And so I came back to New York, sold all my furniture. I bought a car, I bought a Subaru Forester, like the old boxy ones. I only put what I could fit in there strapped my bike on the back and in may quit my job and drove to alaska
0: so you quit the united nations job and just drove to alaska yeah that's incredible
1: (laughs) how was the drive
0: to alaska by the way i actually never knew you could drive to alaska until you told me that you did it
1: yeah there's there's a couple of ways in um but i went so i left from new york i went to memphis and this is again this is around the time when like I was friends with a bunch of people on message boards and, you know, I just had friends that I hadn't met yet anyway, like all over the place. But yeah, I drove to Memphis and I went to Memphis in May, which is a dope ass weekend. Um, I saw Morris Day in the Time and Lucinda Williams and like all these great bands uh, with my friend Angie. And from there, I just kind of zigzagged. I was on the road for like almost two months and I zigzagged like I went up to Chicago and I went over to. I was like, what's in Arkansas? I don't know. Let's find out. And I would just kind of go. You know, it was back when cell phones were, you had to pay for minutes. (laughs) So it's like calling people was dicey. Gas was cheap. But, you know, there was no, like I I was using paper maps and atlases. Like it was that time. Um, But I had the best time. I went to the Garden of the Gods in, in Colorado and just like rode my bike around all this natural beauty. And it was cool. And then I went up from the West Coast. So I went up through Vancouver and kind of into Alaska that way and kind of went inwards and then back over but it was fucking cool i saw the alaska pipeline and i was like is that it because it's i think alaska pipeline i think like fucking massive like round it's like this very reasonably sized round pipe it's kind of like a light gray turquoise color and it just kind of runs (laughs) along like it's really babbling brook like river type thing but it was cool
0: so like one of my favorite pieces of writing that you've ever done and i feel like a lot of people know this um, particular piece that you wrote for was it for New York magazine I don't remember what it was for but it was basically like you talking about dating in Alaska which mm-hmm. I think is so fascinating and especially as a black woman right because you always assume Alaska is probably white as fuck like yeah you know maybe there's some like indigenous people but like you know are there Asians there? Are there black people there? I have no idea. I assume not, but you could probably tell me.
1: It is surprisingly, it was surprisingly diverse to me because I assumed it was going to be like all white and Inuit. And it was pretty much that. But there's like, you know, there are army bases and Air Force bases. And, you know, there are ways that people get there and there's some diversity introduced to that population.
0: But it's really male, right? Because that's what I think you said. Yeah. So like, I want to tell people to read it, but I also just want you to tell me like what it was like. Yeah, you could do both.
1: (laughs) You could do both. And I mentioned this in the article, and I believe it's for the cut that I wrote this. um, And I mentioned it in the article, but the kind of the prevailing advice is that the odds are good, but the goods are odd. So there (laughs) were (laughs) men definitely outnumbered women. So if you're heterosexual, like your odds were good. But holy shit, the dudes you were going to get were Wild. I, I dated like a, a fire paratrooper and like the crux of the article and the crux of my experience is that when, before I got to Alaska, I was the weird girl. Like I wasn't a hot commodity and I'd had a boyfriend and it was nice, but like I didn't really choose my dating life up to that point it was kind of like whoever wants me <laughs> like I'm yeah. here I'm ready to go and so it was really wild to be there and I was kind of like like a hothouse flower you know like I was totally exotic I had dreadlocks and like you know it was I was I was an, an exotic entity there and dudes were interested the hard part for that for me was like figuring out when am I being fetishized and when am I being pursued but it was cool to have an experience where I felt Sexually powerful, because based on how I grew up and my experiences, that was a a rarity for me. And yeah, I dated some wild, wild dudes. I mean, I just... Oh, the flashing that went on in bars and the... The flashing. Like, oh, God, I would flash my tits for a beer. Like, <laughs> was nothing.
0: I actually didn't know flashing meant showing your boobs.
1: Yeah, flashing's the same everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, like, I just, I had wild times. So I would date these, just like these dudes who like worked on oil pipes and fishing boats. And, you know, then people who worked at universities and like, it was just, it was cool. It was cool, but it was a very empowering experience for me because I, I drove there alone. I was there alone. And it was it was great.
0: How long did you live there total?
1: I lived there for four
0: years. And what what made you want to leave? Were you just tired of flashing people in in
1: bars? I'm like, you know what? These titties have seen it all. Let's get <laughs> out of here.
0: They, they are cold
1: <laughs> and <laughs> i'm I'm over it (laughs) well it was there are a few things that made me want to leave one of them is that you know i have suffered from depression since i was a teenager and it was exacerbated like you would not believe when i got to alaska because it's dark half the year and shocker that's not great for people who have depression um also i was poor And it is the most expensive place I've ever lived. Like a gallon of milk back then was like four bucks. I think now I would not be surprised if a gallon of milk is like eight bucks. Like it is so expensive because everything is imported. So I remember vividly I was living in a house. I had um, two roommates. We were renting a house. They were both kind of bitchy to me. And Kill Bill came out and I was like, I want to see this movie. And they were going and I'm like, can I go with you? And, you know, having to ask was already shitty enough. And they were like, yeah, sure. And then I kind of looked around and I was like, I don't have any money. So I sold some CDs to get enough money to go to the movie. And I'm like, these bitches would literally not lend me five bucks. And that was so weird. Like, it was so expensive to be there and I had no support at all. So that was a weird turning point where I'm like, I'm alone and isolated. This is scary. But I also like I had great friends and, you know, that wasn't a typical experience for me, but it was just really weird. And, you know, I worked in bookstores and I always had two or three jobs. And then I went out and I worked on the Aleutian Islands for a year because, you know, I wanted to work for this fishing company and thinking I could make some money. And it was just like, you know, living in container vans and I lived in an old hotel. Yeah, it was kind of horrible. Like I got chased by a bear. I stabbed a dude. What?
0: Wait a fucking (laughs) second you you <laughs> stabbed a
1: dude yeah i mean I'm, I'm gonna save the story of the stabbing for my next book but i can tell you about the bear chase
0: <laughs> okay give me a moment please first of all it's a, like even if you don't talk about stabbing a dude right now getting chased by a bear is about <laughs> as serious as that so like uh, you were chased and, uh, by an actual fucking like a grizzly bear? Isn't that what they have in Alaska? I I'm only basing this off of what I've seen
1: in horror films. So, uh, and it was less of a chase and more of a lope. Like, um, so because <laughs> if I was being like actively pursued, he would have gotten me. They run really fast, and I would have died. Let um, me let me
0: tell you. I swear to God, I spend a lot of time on the internet googling what to do in those scenarios like bear <laughs> scenarios in particular because any ah. any literature you read is like guess what you're dead because they're as fast as you they can climb they can swim you're fucked
1: basically yeah so like you're you better be bionic to get out of this shit <laughs> and what's wild is it like it's, it's it was really like you know i was working late and i was you know, I was by myself in the office. It was late at night. I didn't have to worry about people so much because we were on, a we were in a camp and all working together. So we were, you know, we were right on the water and uh, you're supposed to clear all your stuff off your boats when you leave for the day. And someone had left a bunch of garbage on their boat. And this brown bear was just like, Rooting around in it, and I heard him and smelled him before I saw him. So I came out and I decided I'm going to cut through the boatyard because it has lights, and you know the other way around the beach up the hill didn't have any lights. And so I walked into the boatyard and I heard this crash and I looked and I saw this fucking brown bear on this boat and I took off like a cartoon, like I just ran back into the building. And <laughs> you know, I was there by myself. I was late at night doing HR shit, and I ran back into the building and. um just slept on the floor because he was just pacing in front of the door on the beach for a little bit and i was like all right (laughs) i can't leave and i fell asleep for a few hours woke up looked out didn't seem to be there decided to go the other way the dark way up the hill um and there's a little fence leading up the hill but it was still right up against the boatyard and as i round the building and i'm walking up the hill i hear him snorting and like 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 snuffling around Again. And I was like, fuck this. I'll, I'll wait till daylight. <laughs> I just went back in the building and slept for the rest of the night on the floor.
0: So I can totally see why you left Alaska. Like, it's <laughs> all so, like if you have to shower with a Leatherman and <laughs> out sleep a bear, basically, then I would be out. Yeah.
1: And it was time because I was just depressed. I was depressed. It was time to go. But, re- and really what kicked me over the edge is that, um, my my granddad had lung cancer and he was very sick and dying and it came on very quickly. Um, and it took me, I had to borrow money to go home uh, from a guy I was seeing, which felt like shit. But he was very kind in giving it to me. Um, he bought me a plane ticket, but it took about 24 hours for me to get home. And by the time I landed, he had already died and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So I'm like, I'm I'm too far away. Yeah, I'm too far away. So, yeah.
0: So you decided at some point to go back to school because I feel like you that's when I met you was when you were in a grad program
1: yes so I came back from Alaska um, and I moved to Rhode Island because that's where my then boyfriend lived and you know got my own place and everything it was fine we weren't we didn't live together right away but I was working for a glass blower I was working at a bakery and just kind of felt like You know, I'm almost 30, and I just feel like I'm not making choices anymore about what I want to do that propels me forward. I'm just surviving. And that was okay for a while. But when you're depressed and feeling that way, it just like, I don't know, I didn't have much to live for. It didn't feel like. So, one of the women who I was working with at this bakery was like talking about her experience in college, and her kids were going to college, and she was an older woman. And she was like, you know, you should go back to school. (laughs) like I just feel like you know talking to you and the things you're interested in like you should give it a shot and I was like I can't like I don't have any money and she's like you can get loans you can do this you can do that you can transfer the credits you already have from the year that you went and she was really she had to explain all of that shit to me and that those are the kinds of people that I feel like are true angels in that universal scent like something from the universe put me in that place to meet that woman because she really gave me a way forward instead of just saying you should do this she walked me through the steps of how it was possible and she made it really hard for me to say no (laughs) you know like she's like you want to do this right and I was like yeah I really do but I don't know how so I went to the University of Rhode Island in Kingston and I majored in English because you know love to read and um, women's studies And so when I I, that was when I was thirty years old, I went back to college and I got my undergrad degree because I double majored, and then I went to um, the University of Wisconsin in Madison because I got a full ride for my master's program in gender studies. Wow! And I started uh, feminist Ryan Gosling. So the first two months of my my grad school experience were that.
0: Yeah, I want to talk (laughs) about that because that is kind of. You were on the map so many times before (laughs) feminist Ryan Gosling. But I think that's like it became a true sensation and kind of like made you famous. I mean, that's I was just getting to know you at that moment. And, you know, I, I was obviously very curious because you seemed like you were really doing a lot of gender studies work. And I was, you know, obviously very interested in that about you um but then you you basically created it as a way to study for your programs right isn't that how it started
1: yeah because well undergrad was such a great experience for me because i was friends with my professors and i was like learning things in a way that felt good to me and then i got to grad school and it was heavy theorizing just yeah. such heavy just so heavy on the theory that it was like it took all the fun out of learning for me and i was just sad and considering like what am i doing this isn't the type of work i want to do like i wanted to teach at that point i wanted to go on and get my phd and like be a professor and i just hated all the theory i couldn't get through it It was so dense so i just sat down one night and i think i had just seen drive (laughs) like i took an afternoon off and went to the movies and saw drive that'll do it (laughs) (laughs) and i came back and i made a couple of cards that i posted on my personal tumblr As I was studying and my friends were all laughing and I will will give this one to Becca Havens because she is the one she's a friend of mine who said, take this off of your personal Tumblr and make it its own thing right now. And I was like, all right. And I didn't come up with the Hey Girl thing. That was another person um because i guess ryan gosling was reading something um on mtv news or something like that where somebody had posted all these like hey girl but it was like hey girl you look nice today or just like kind of innocuous things and it made ryan gosling laugh and it made me laugh so i just wrote hey girl and then i would just write some fucking dense theory and it cracked me up and i put it on a picture of ryan gosling and i started to remember that shit so they were just like flashcards for me for school And I went, I put it up on its own thing. And uh, it was a Saturday. I went to the farmer's market. And while I was on the bus coming home, I was getting all these uh, emails and text messages. And my friends were like, you're on Jezebel. You're on this, you're on that. And I was like, what? And literally overnight, it blew up.
0: I mean, it was the high Tumblr era for sure. Yeah. And it was the high Ryan Gosling era. It was like a perfect storm. Of awesome shit happening
1: for you. (laughs) It really
0: was. And then you, and it turned into a book.
1: Like. Yeah. I wrote the book on my first winter break. I wrote that book in a month.
0: Holy shit.
1: Cause I'm like, I can't, like I was going to school. I was a teacher's assistant. So I was teaching classes three times a week. I was writing my thesis and preparing for a dissertation. And I was newly married. And. I just I couldn't do I'm like I can't add this to my workload you know I was studying already like you know 10 hours a day so I just wrote it over my winter break
0: and so what did that do for you in terms of like did you think after this maybe I should write more books and be a writer or were you interested were you still going back to grad school being like this is what i'm doing i'm i'm you know doing my dissertation i'm gonna get my phd and that's that's that right
1: absolutely i thought well this is fun i'm gonna be a professor right like that was my my goal and what was really strange is that at the time Doing that became kind of miserable because the internet is going to be the internet. And instead of people kind of joining in on the joke and being, fun and having fun with me while I was having fun with it um, I started getting all these people telling me that I was wrong and I'm doing it wrong and, and nobody knew that I was a black woman until the book came out and I posted some pictures from the book launch and people were like oh shit you're a black woman <laughs> and like oh is that gonna change the way you yell at me now like what the fuck yeah. but internet basically gonna internet, like, right? fuck. internet gonna internet and it, the, people made it really fucking miserable for me so I stopped doing it I just stopped doing it um, because it wasn't fun. And it was like, you know, people would send me shit and be like, this is how it should be done. And they would pick things and like just copy me basically, but like do it their way and say it was better. And I just, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. So I stopped. So it didn't change my life in that way. Like it didn't change my life to write the book, to do the site. Um, it helped me study, which was its, its intended goal. But it all the attention it got, like it was on Rachel Maddow one one night. And like all the attention it got did nothing for me. What it did do is it became a calling card. So I wanted to write freelance. And I was now able to approach editors and say, hey, I'm this person and I'd like to write for you. So I used that book to open two very important doors for me. (laughs) One is that I started recapping for um, Vulture. And I basically, I wrote to them. I think I put on my website, I just put a, like a mock-up of what I would do if I was recapping Real Housewives of Atlanta for them because they weren't covering it. And I'm like, this is the best Real Housewives show and you're not covering it. What's up? And it's the I only sent one the I've seen. Yeah. Like, to this day. <laughs> it's the only one that matters. Potomac, I think you'd like Potomac too. Uh, <laughs> but, but I sent them a link and I'm like, hey, I'm this person. I wrote Feminist Ryan Gosling. I would like to recap this for you. And they hired me and I started recapping for them, which made me realize that I could do freelance writing and I could write in a way that was not purely academic and it was actually fun. And I also used it, I used that book as a way to, like, I kind of uh, wanted to add it and I knew that it would help me when it was time for me to apply for PhD programs because they love people who publish anything. And it was a very specific thing. And I was applying for, you know, gender studies programs and communications and media programs. So I knew that that would help me stand out. It wouldn't necessarily help me get in but it helped me stand out. And um, I did. I got offers from Emory and and all over the place. And I chose the University of um, Washington in Seattle because my husband really wanted to be there. And I thought it was it was a good balance and a good mix for my academic life and my personal life. And I'm going to possibly ruffle some feathers right now, but I fucking hated Seattle. Really? I hated it. I've never been around meaner people in my entire life. And they have this thing called the Seattle freeze where it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, for like two or three years, we just don't talk to you or interact with you. And I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm friendly. I'm going to make friends. And it was just dour, mean people everywhere I looked. And truly, no one really wants to admit this. One of the more racist places I've ever lived. Wow. Not my favorite place.
0: And you lived in Alaska. (laughs) And I lived in
1: goddamn Alaska. I grew up in farm town and I lived in Alaska. And Seattle was more racist than both of them combined. That's like People would call me nigger on the bus. (gasps) Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. And the Pacific Northwest has a lot of that and nobody really wants to admit it, but it's true. Um, So I was just I was having a really hard time adjusting. I was really having a hard time in my Ph.D. program because I felt like, You know, I chose communication and media studies because I thought that's what I wanted to do. But I just wasn't clicking with any of it. And I couldn't stand my professors or at least one professor in particular. She was a real bitch. Uh, (laughs) And then I looked around the room one day and I was like, I'm going to be talking to the same seven people for the rest of my fucking life. I'm going to see them at conferences. I'm going to be writing papers to them. This is my life forever if I stay here. And if I do this, my marriage wasn't wasn't in a good place. I wasn't in a good place. I was depressed. I was sad. I was not well when I lived in Seattle. So I left my PhD program after the first semester. And I I started writing for The Stranger, I eventually moved up and was the arts and culture editor for The Stranger for a little while. But I was still freelancing. I was able to afford my rent that way. And yeah, I just kind of did that for a little bit. And then my marriage ended. And I was like, I don't have a reason to have to stay in Seattle anymore. So I packed up all my shit, put it in a pod. And on January 1st I of that year, I arrived back in New York City. Literally start like New Year, new me, started off the new year in New York. And I lived in Harlem and I was freelancing and that was my job. And I was like, this is great. Like I'm broke and I am scared, but I felt like I was at home.
0: Yeah. So how did you go from freelancing to television? I think that's a question you get asked probably a lot.
1: My path to TV writing started in the same wild way that everything in my life started, which was by surprise and on a whim. Um, I had been freelance writing for Vulture for a couple of years, and I was recapping a bunch of shows. I recapped Scandal, I recapped, you know, Real Housewives, like I was one of their heavy duty recappers for a while. And when my friend, Julie Klausner, who I met during the feminist Ryan Gosling time, because I came home uh, for the holidays to visit my grandma. And she was like, you should be on my show. And I'm like, I'm going to be home for four days. <laughs> like I will if you, if you could put me in this window. Um, and then we just hit it off. And we've been friends ever since. And she left her recapping duties of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills when Difficult People got picked up. So she asked me if I would take over her recapping. And I said, yeah. I'll recap Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. My agent found me through those recaps because I had one recap in particular where I did it in the voice of one of the more annoying characters on the show. I did the whole recap that way. And let me tell you, the fans were livid. They were like, who is this asshole doing the recaps? We hate her. I felt like a piece of shit. People did not like me at all. They're like, where's Julie? We don't want any of this. My agent called me the next day and was like, hey, I'm an agent and you write about television in a really funny way. Have you ever thought about writing for television? And I was like, "Uh, no, <laughs> I, I haven't. Because who who just assumes they can do that? Exactly. <laughs> and we, we really talked about it because I knew nothing about television writing. Not a thing. But she worked with me and she worked with me for almost a year and like told me what a spec script is walked me through the process of how people get hired like you write a spec script you take some meetings you know you get hired on a show and you're a staff writer and then you kind of work your way up to like she explained everything to me as if i was five years old because that's what i needed um and i wrote a spec script i genuinely just took moments of my life and fictionalized them a little bit and just like that was my spec was just writing about like my 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 insane family life (laughs) and i just made that my spec script for a half hour comedy and um through julie i'd met tom sharpling and tom was working on the show divorce Uh, and it's very rare to have a writer's room in new york most most writer's rooms are in la and he was like you know you're funny and you're a person who's been divorced and julie told tells me that you want to get into tv writing like you should you should submit your spec script to this show and i was like all right so i did and i got hired And I was, that was my first staff writing job was writing for divorce on HBO. And it was wild. It was a wild experience. And it was, you know, a couple of months, but I got to stay in New York and it was great. And it was just up from there. You know, my friend Patrick, who I met, Patrick Somerville, uh, and I met when he came to Wisconsin to interview me about feminist Ryan Gosling. And we stayed in contact and stayed friends. So when he started on Maniac, he was like, oh yeah, you're doing TV writing now, right? Like, you should check this out. Like, I think you'd like it. It's like, it's really sci-fi. It's really up your alley. And that was my second job. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's like, there's this level of nepotism in the business that I've never benefited from. But in those two instances, I feel like my friends were looking out for me for sure. Or at least willing to give me the chance, yeah. <laughs> which was cool.
0: Yeah. And then at some point, because I know you still write for TV, but then you also wrote a memoir. What Was there, had you always wanted to write a book? Were you always... I mean, besides the, I know the feminist Ryan Gosling book, but something that was a little bit more personal.
1: I thought about it. And then I thought I, I do the thing that I that I used to always do because I, you know, I I do have a crushingly low self-esteem or at least I used to have a very low self-esteem. And now I think I just have like I've evened out a little bit. Um but I never thought my life story was worth writing about. I thought, like, things have happened to me, but weirder and wilder and worse things have happened to other people. So why would I take up the space to write a book? And it wasn't until I, I met my literary agent, Christopher Schelling, through my friend Rainbow, Rainbow Rowell, who I met on Twitter. <laughs> like, just the Internet has been good to me in so many ways. But Rainbow was in town. And we met and her. we had dinner with Christopher, her agent, and his husband, who's... Um, her, his husband's Augustine Burroughs. And um, Augustine really doesn't like anybody. So I was just like, <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> like, like, I'll go. But if he doesn't like me, I'm prepared for that. Even though he's one of my favorite writers. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm really Pressure's take on, that bitch. Shot. <laughs> <laughs> And he liked me. He liked me. <laughs> so um, we... Just became friends and they moved out of New York and into Connecticut and I would go visit on the weekends and Christopher um, and I talked about, you know, if he would be my agent and represent me. Um, and I was like, yeah, but I don't know if I really want to write anything like that. And then Augustine was the one who really said to me, you know, that the stories that you tell us around the dinner table when you visit are so funny and so great. And he's like, you know, wouldn't it be easier for you to just write a book? and get in advance instead of struggling to make ends meet with freelance forever and he kind of really just shifted my perspective on that a little bit and just in that way kind of thinking that like oh yeah they're just stories they're just stories that i'm telling it's not like you know this tome that i'm writing and that really helped and christopher christopher also helped uh because he he would say well remember that story you told like why don't you just write that down in a word doc just like one or two pages and I did. And then he'd say, like, well, what about this one? And I, I did. And I did that like three times. And then he was like, all right, let's put a bio on this because this is your pitch doc. Like, we'll put a bio on this. Uh, you just wrote three chapters of your book. And uh, <laughs> <gasps> pretty like, sneaky, we'll, sis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it around. And I was like, what? That's it? And he's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> so we did. We took it around and um, I sold it at auction and I sold it to Simon & Schuster. And then a couple months after I signed with them, um, Simon and Schuster signed Milo Yiannopoulos, who was that horrible, racist shithead who basically led the attack on Leslie Jones and called black women gorillas and was just a real piece of shit.
0: I'm glad that you have to say remember him because it meant that he fucking went away at some point. But Jesus, like,
1: mm-hmm. That he was very prominent for a while. yeah. And so when they signed him, I had a real talk with Christopher about how uncomfortable I was. And I asked him, like, you know, if I don't want to work with them, will I get to write this book for anyone else? Or will I be just be like that asshole who gave up her publishing deal? And he was like, I will support you no matter what you want to do. And of course, you can sell this book again. And of course, you can write this book again. And... He was incredibly supportive. And I don't even know if I'm like legally around, allowed to talk about all this, but I'm happy to tell the story and we can cut it if we need to. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, he really was the architect of, of that for me. And because I just said, I don't want to do this. And he's like, I gotcha. And he got me out of my contract and I had to give them all their money back, uh, which I did. And they still didn't want to release me from the contract until it was up a year later, which is a shithead move. Um, so they basically held my book hostage for a year because I couldn't write it for anyone. And so I was like, that's all right. I'm still working. I'm starting this TV writing thing. I'll just pivot over here. I was out to L.A. for like six months and I would I would really go back and forth, like for the first couple of years of my TV writing career. Um I would be out here for six months and then be in New York for six months. And it was hard to na- to navigate that because I had to find like cat sitters and friends who would stay in my apartment. And then I had to find places out here and I had to pay for them on my own out of pocket. And I wasn't really getting paid enough for TV writing to support two apartments in the most expensive cities in this fucking country. Yeah. And it was hard. It was really really hard. And I'd also um I'd optioned my book proposal. At that point I came out to LA and did a bunch of meetings and optioned it to Anna Perna and Paul Feig was going to direct it and then that just ended up falling through. But that felt like a big deal thing and I got a little bit of cash infusion from that and that was kind of cool. But then yeah, I came, you know, came back to New York, was able to sell the book again. Ended up at Viking, which is just a dream come true. And it should have been my first choice. (laughs) Um, But my editor there, Andrea Schultz, she's just, she's the best. Andrea Schultz is the best. And was very patient with my writing of this book because it was, it was hard. It was a lot harder than I thought it would be in ways I didn't expect it to be. Because I'm kind of, you know, I'm mining my deepest trauma. I haven't talked to my mom in like 20 years. And I'm really going through the toughest parts of my life and writing about it again. And I got really depressed and it was I was stunted for a long time like I could not proceed and she was so patient they were so great with me and really helped me through the and I had this big fear you know I had a lot of fear about putting this kind of book out in the world it was very personal and and it felt like a big deal to me and I didn't want to get it wrong and I knew if I was writing from this place of depression I was going to get it wrong so thankfully they were patient and it was also you know it's also hard to work in tv and be writing a book and I don't know. It was just, it was really difficult for, not coal mining difficult, but difficult for a few years. But I got through it. My book was a couple of years late. <laughs> but I got through it and um, I'm actually, I'm really proud of what I wrote that yeah. I can't wait for people to read it.
0: Oh my God. I know. I just feel like I'm. I've been waiting to, you know, have it come out in the world. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm so excited. I'm sure everybody is, Just based on what you've told us in the past hour and a half or, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, that's just like, I can't imagine it's going to be so awesome to just read the things that you've experienced. I mean, I guess that's kind of like why I wanted to do this, because I just knew you had so many interesting points in your life that like, let's get serious, like most people don't do this stuff. And the fact that you've done it pretty much on your own. I mean, you say you have low self-esteem, but you, to me, it doesn't seem that way. You seem super fearless and super competent. And I just, I mean, maybe those two are, maybe that's all different stuff anyway, but I feel like you're just such a interesting person and very inspiring. So I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I got to pick your brain a little bit for this bonus app, but I also want to ask like, maybe as a final question. So like we're in 2021 now and now to be completely Terry gross, but like what you got coming up on the horizon. What's uh, what's <laughs> life going to be like in 2021 for Danielle Henderson
1: well i'm starting a cult um i'm cool. sewing our outfits by myself <laughs> <laughs> no actually I'm, I'm writing i'm currently writing um a proposal for my next book which will be all about alaska and the time i spent living there Fun. so you got a little preview yes i
0: love it, it. exclusive yeah.
1: Writing a book i'm doing this incredibly cool podcast with like the smartest and funniest person i know Aww. so But yeah, I just, I, those are the things that are exciting to me right now is that I've crafted a life where I can write for a living is an absolute fucking miracle to me. And the fact that I get to do something like this with a friend and have a platform and have like a creative outlet, I just want more of that. You know, I want that to be the rest of my life. You know, I'm 43. I want that to be it. That is what I do now. (laughs) So I think, um, you know, on top of that, it's it's probably not something that people usually list as like a thing that they plan to do in the future. But I'm also really proud of myself for getting a hold of like my mental health issues. And I hope to just kind of that I can keep going through the therapeutic process in a way that benefits me because it has in the last couple of years really changed my life. And I'm starting, I feel like I'm coming into my own and I'm not really as afraid of myself as I used to be. So. I think that's kind of, those are like my main yeah. goals.
0: Yeah, that is definitely an accomplishment. I mean, it's probably the first thing anyone needs to do
1: <laughs> before they do all this I other agree. stuff, you know. I so. agree. I know. Therapy is so great. And I just, it, more than anything, it helped me recognize patterns and patterns in my life that were enacted by the things that I went through as a kid. And there are things that I would never think were tied to my childhood that are absolutely tied to my childhood and how I react and how I talk to people and, you know, how I feel when I'm threatened and how I feel when I'm scared and all of that is tied to it. So, yeah, therapy, I'm going to recommend it every chance we get.
0: Well, gosh, thanks so much for sharing all of that. I hope it wasn't too personal. I mean, I'm just... So lucky to be sitting here with you right now. I'm so lucky you didn't get killed by a black bear. I mean, (laughs) Jesus H. Christ. That's like like a fear that I have that will completely be unfounded, I'm sure. But I'm just like, man, going toe-to-toe with a bear is definitely...
1: We could do a whole episode of what were your worst decisions before age 27. <laughs> but I, I do feel lucky. And I'm just um, thank you for making this easy to talk about my life and and make it fun. And the biggest part of the reason why it's fun and easy to do is because you're really a great friend and you're really a great person. And I'm just very excited that we get to talk to each other every week.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, the feeling is mutual. And I love you. Thanks for doing this. I love you, too. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, everybody. I mean, what else do you want from us? We're given and given. <laughs> it's the whole story. What What more can I say? You got an exclusive. <laughs> God damn it. But um, yeah, I guess, <laughs> like, thanks for listening. And come on
1: back to the main feed and we'll have an episode for you. See y'all soon. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.